hope you have your Bibles. This is a good time to open up the Word of the Lord. And I'm reading from the Psalms. I read from Psalm 51 today. And though I would prefer to read the entirety of it, I'll just offer three verses. Psalm 51, and I'll begin with verse 15. David is writing, of course. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Here's verse 16. For thou desirest not sacrifice. I would give that. I can give money. David said, I I can give lambs and sheep and oxen and goats and turtle doves. I can do. You don't delight in burnt offerings, David said. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. Thou wilt not despise. Amen. Father, we need you today. I pray for all the people that are hearing this, that their hearts would be open and receptive. Let them receive the word with all readiness of mind. Let their spirits be open, Lord, to the infallible word of God. And I pray that you would invest yourself in every living room, every home, every car, every house that hosts this word. And let it be planted there, Lord. In Jesus' name. Speak with me his name. Would you do that? Say it in Jesus' name. Come on, say it again in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Savior. I love you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Of all the Psalms penned by this poetic king, none seem more counter or opposed to his day. And the reason why is because animal sacrifices were routine. They were part and parcel to worship and offerings. This had been going on for a long time, and it would continue. But David writes as if he's entered into some other time, maybe another generation like ours. People have choices to make, and David is writing of his choice. He was not forced to write Psalm 51. However, I do submit that had he not written this one, there would have been no more to come. The words found in Psalm 51 are more than just helpful song lyrics, though some of our modern songwriters have helped themselves by borrowing David's depths. It's amazing. I do love verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew within me a right spirit. Surely David understood the value of what cannot be seen. The words pinned here are done so by deliberate action, so much resting on these words. In fact, it could be said that this one psalm saved the nation. You see, at the time when kings go off to war that season 
When warriors gather their armies together in defense or to conquer, David stayed home. His absence was the telltale of his spiritual condition. David did allow his mighty men to journey on, but without him. And he wandered the empty corridors of his palace. To be sure, the scripture is replete with David's exploits. From the field of his father to the valley of Elah, Elah, and then on to so many other victories, David has seen his share of spoils. Perhaps he's grown tired of the battlefield. Maybe the high of yet another success has come and gone. He's become content to shine his past trophies, all of them lining the hallways of his life of luxury. He's so far past the days of his youth. There once was a day when David wasn't even considered at all. His own father, Jesse, had dismissed the possibility of his appointment to be the next king of Israel. David was the forgotten son, at least in the beginning. That day, when David ran onto the scene and saw his dejected and rejected brothers, all of them wondering why they were passed over, David saw the look on his father's face. But we have no regard of David's anger toward his brothers or father. It's not listed there. In contrast, we are led to see the compassion that overwhelmed him. He's not boastful like Joseph. He's not arrogant like Samson. He's not self-sufficient like Solomon. But as the years went by, things begin to change. They change in David's heart. You only ask for a clean heart and a right spirit if the one you have is corrupted and wrong. You see, David fell victim to his own reputation. His rise to power was unprecedented in world history. He was an instant success even before he ascended to the throne. But when his predecessor died, David's popularity skyrocketed. Yes, he was a tender king with a propensity for compassion. But he was also a man of war, having defeated so many enemies of Israel. Our time would not permit me to tell the whole. David was the most notable king in David's, in Israel's history rather. There was no one like him, no king like him. But the day that he sent his men off to the battlefield, and I'll quote it, at the time when kings go forth to battle, David tarried still at Jerusalem. In this moment of idleness, when kings go off to war and warriors are out there on the battlefield, David rested on his lees. He was idle, lethargic, and lax. It was a bad look for a man of action and gave him opportunity for lust. Some time during his days off, I suppose, not sure what day it was, but he looks away from the safety of his own home. He sees a woman bathing. Now, I know today that there are families watching, so I'll say it this way. An invitation will result in an indiscretion. James wrote it, but every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. No truer scripture could have been written to capture the day when David stole another man's wife. He knew what he had done, but he was the king, and he had the power to cover his tracks. Kings never make themselves look bad. Kings rarely confess their own faults. They are kings, after all. And kings are always right in their own eyes. They hide their failures and sometimes blame other people for them. 
David's sin might have been hidden, but Bathsheba became pregnant. And in those days, there was no way to hide that fact. Now, wars could last for a long time. They weren't over in a week or two. They could be months. Uriah was on the battlefield and he was not coming home. There was no way to cover it all up. So David did what kings do. He acted like he had done nothing wrong. He plotted his own course. And he called Uriah home from war. He thought that a little home time might cover the issue. But he never understood the depth of loyalty and love that he had garnished from his own men. He did not know how much his men loved him, especially this man. The problem was that Uriah was loyal, a virtue now lost on this king. David sent food home and urged him to go home, be with your wife, take a little time off. But Uriah said, I cannot enjoy the pleasures of home while my fellow soldiers are risking their lives on that battlefield. And he rejected the comforts of home. I'll read it to you. He said, the Bible says, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and went not down to his house. Uriah slept on the ground, never grazed the doors of his own home, which of course foiled David's manipulative plan. It was ruined by loyalty and commitment. Thank you, dear king. I just can't relax when a battle is going on. Thank you, honored king, but I couldn't live with myself if I did this thing. But David is the king, and kings will go to any extent, even bypass their own conscience, to hide themselves. Perhaps in frustration, David sent Uriah back to the battlefield and then ordered his general to have the men advance forward and they retreat there by leaving Uriah out in the open to die. David needed to bury his sin and he thought, if I can bury Uriah, maybe I can bury my failure. Uriah felt the sting of the arrows. The enemy surrounded him and with every glancing blow of their sharpened swords, David's failure seemed farther away. Uriah died that day because of David's sin. And David looked like the good man taking Bathsheba as his wife. But kings need a counter. Everyone must be kept in check or at least have an opportunity to be healed. Kings and nations, rulers and countries, lands of all ages, of all people of all types. I suppose that David thought he got away with his devious scheme. Until the day that Nathan, the prophet, walked in and inquired of him. Nathan was the prophet who had once tempered David about the temple. Nathan communed with David and offered spiritual counsel on many occasions. He was the guiding hand of David's life, giving direction and hearing from God. So far, Nathan presented the pleasant voice of a gracious God. Sure, he was a prophet, but until this time, David never felt the blade of rebuke from the prophet Nathan. Paul told Timothy, a time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. They're not going to receive sound doctrine. Paul said, but preach the word. Reprove, Paul said. Rebuke, Paul said. Correct the brothers if need be. Just know, not everyone is going to welcome it. Yes, Nathan's about to craft a rebuke. It's a wound. It's a strike. Nathan has come with purpose. He's not 
wandering aimlessly into the courtroom of the king. There is something pressing, but David never suspects that he himself is the lead subject. Nathan is sharpening his own sword. Oh, King David, King David, I must tell you about someone in the kingdom. It's a man. Tell me, Nathan, what is it? He's a wealthy man, O king. He has hundreds and hundreds of sheep. He has all the flocks he would ever want. But this wealthy man, he found another man who had one sheep and he stole that sheep. And then after he stole the sheep, he killed the man. What shall we do, O king? There's a man who has committed crimes, a thief, a liar, a deceptor, a murderer. David is leading hard against his jewel-crusted scepter, his elbow pressing against the arm of his magnificent throne laid with crimson and purple. Nathan has the king's attention. It's an awful story filled with shame and greed. A poor man has been robbed and then killed ruthlessly. I'll read David's intensity from the Bible. The Bible says it this way. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. Who is the man? Bring him. He's going to pay four times the amount that he took. He'll die because he did such a horrible thing with no pity. Those are what the, those were the words that David replied. His anger is greatly kindled against the man. Who is that man? And now the prophet Nathan leans forward. He's about to do surgery. He points his finger into David's faith. Face David's life is now depending on this moment. The nation is resting on the next few moments of time. And Nathan says, thou art the man. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Nathan could have kissed him. He could have hugged him. He could have let him go. He could have walked away and let it be. He could have posed the story another way. The prophet could have patted the king on the back and puffed him up, but David would have died. When sin is finished, it brings forth death. Nathan was not willing to allow David to die in sin. Thou art the man. And now a choice has to be made. People have to make a choice. People make choices every day. It has to be personal, individual, intimate, and distinct. And now David is at the point of no return. The nation rests on David's choice. Unbeknownst to the nation, the whole of Israel is resting on David's reply. His response holds the key to healing or sickness, to life or death. Whatever he says next, whatever he does next, will determine the condition of the entire land. Families far and wide will live or perish based on the response of this king the economy of israel the armies of israel their enemies lurking in the shadows the viabilities of their farms their crops and their livestock the hinge of the nation rest on the next few moments of time thou art the man and a choice has to be made and I wonder who can take it who would allow anyone to speak to them like that who would allow a prophet to point them out I dare say not many would ever allow that because we are all kings in America 
We boast of our individuality and our freedoms. We are accustomed to speaking our minds and being disagreeable if we want. We are the offspring of Paul Revere and a host of other powerful, strong men and women of all colors and backgrounds. Thou art the man, the prophet said. God spoke through Nathan and he said, I gave you your, your master's house and thy master's wives into your bosom. I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have moreover given anything such and such, whatever you wanted. Now art the man. And there it lay. The king now can rise up if he so chooses. He has the power to kill this disparaging prophet. He can cut off his head. There are other prophets to be found. David has a choice to make. He can gather up his rights or lay down his will. And though I cannot say for certain how the inanimate objects of the world might respond, all I know is that the land could have waited with bated breath to hear the voice of this called out king exposed. The land is waiting for kings to make a choice. People have a choice to make. It's not about politics or careers or material things. It's far greater than all we have heard. Let me read the familiar word that so many have quoted, but I got to put it in context today. If my people, God said, which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and I will heal their land. We've heard that verse so many times, i got to put it in the greater picture. You see, after all that Solomon had done, after all the work of the temple had been completed, it was God that finally spoke to him in the night. The temple was over. It was, it was through. Everything was good. But the heart of the people was still in question. The heart of the people was still in question. The spirit of the land was still teetering. And God said, Solomon, I've chosen the place for myself. Sacrifices are going to be made there. Made there. God said, but Solomon, I have something to say. Let me say it. I got something to say. And I'll read it to you from the Living Bible, what God said. God said, if I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or I command the locusts to swarm and eat up all your crops, hear this, or if I send an epidemic among you, uh, then if my people will humble themselves and pray and search me, turn from the wicked ways, I'll hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. I will listen wide awake to every prayer made in this place. If I send you a famine, if I send you locusts, if I send you an epidemic of virus, the land is waiting on the choice by the people called by his name. It's waiting on repentance. And in that moment when King David was exposed for the horrible thing he had done, taking what did not belong to him, rejecting his God-given commission, killing an innocent man, and then covering up his adulterous affair, in that moment the land waited. The balance of all things present in that time waited. The people waited. And the prophet waited. And in response, now here it is. David cried out he repented the bible says he ripped his clothes he put on sackcloth and ashes and then much to dismay of his own servants and 
people that surrounded him he went outside and laid on the ground for seven days he repented he groveled he remembered where he came from and in that day in those moments that's where we got Psalm 51 he wrote Psalm 51 after he had met with Nathan David said I've sinned against the Lord and in Psalm 51 he said God have mercy on me wash me oh God purge me cast me not away restore me can you hear it everybody deliver me do it again have mercy wash me purge me cast me not away restore me deliver me say it again with me create in me a clean heart renew within me a right spirit have mercy on me purge me restore me deliver me think of it think of the moment now biblical historians they poured they poured over these lines so many times it's been going on for decades and centuries they agree they all basically agree that from the time of second samuel when david had the affair with bathsheba to the time that nathan confronted him david didn't write any songs in any psalm it all dried up after his affair and after he murdered her husband there are no psalms written in fact this was the first one after he repented the infection of David's spirit caused him to dry up and it wasn't until the prophet Nathan came with the knife of revelation and warned that, that, that you, you've done wrong and told him and exposed him that David fell on the ground and now he's going to write the first thing and he writes Psalm 51 guilt and shame will shut down hear me guilt and shame will shut down every gift in your life self-condemnation and covering yourself will destroy the joy of the thing that God gave you until you will no longer be able to operate in the gift that you were given and when Nathan entered that courtroom he was in fact restoring David to the poetry the songwriter the worshiper that David was called to be but I know how these things go David could have pulled the king card on Nathan he could have removed the prophet from his court thrown him out on the street he was the king after all but when the prophet spoke it was fruitful because David was wise enough to know that some things are meant to be saved repentance is the key to a healed land not protocols ladies and gentlemen not programs not more stimulus packages not government oversight repentance so I stand here to say repent we must ask God to forgive us and yes I hope that people who do not know the Lord will seek the Lord and hear this but the scripture is not addressed to the sinner here 2nd Chronicles is not addressed to the unbeliever it's addressed to God's people who are called by his name it is specific to a people who believe in the revealed name of Jesus Christ repentance to turn away to make an about face a new direction that's what we've got to have a new determination is what our nation needs and it's resting on the church called by his name the people of the name have got to come clean and it will come when we lay down our will and take up his cause have mercy wash me purge me clean me renew me cast me not away restore me and deliver me have mercy on me wash me purge me clean me renew me don't cast me away but restore me and deliver me oh. 
I wonder, have we become too religious to repent? Are we so set in our own ways, justified in our own endeavors, that we we forgot how to cry out to God for our own soul's sake? The altar of sacrifice is in the front, ladies and gentlemen. The ark of the covenant is at the end. You cannot bypass the altar and get to the ark. It's the altar that allows you access to the ark. It's death that allows you access to life. Have mercy, wash me, purge me, create in me, clean me, restore me, deliver me. The sacrifices of God, the sacrifices of God, they're not the things that you give with your hands. They're the things you do with your heart. And I'm not the first to preach this word. Many have done so in earnest. Perhaps the greatest was John the Baptist. Repentance was his single sermon. His ministry launched in the wilderness. Repentance was his claim to fame. That and his unfiltered approach to religious people who acted spiritual but were full of venom and poison. His ministry was brief. He probably didn't live to see his 32nd birthday. But in his brief time, he rattled the religious Pharisees, called them out in front of all the gawking crowd. He preached, and people came to see him. He never chased a crowd. He never sought an audience. He never advertised his sermons or meetings. He was not vested in their response. John the Baptist was not an influencer. He came to change lives. Influencers rarely make any major impact on destinies. Rather, they usually garnish their own praise. John was on a mission that reached beyond his persona. He deflected, he deflected their inquiries about him. They asked him in John 1.19, who are you? What was his answer? What did John say? I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, well, then who are you again? Are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you a prophet? He said, no. John said, I'm just a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Think of it. The answer is simple. John came to prepare the way for the one who would come after him. John spent most of his time saying it to the people that they should believe on him who should come after him. Can you imagine? As powerful as John was, he was in pursuit of not being pursued. John the Baptist looked for ways to become smaller. Decrease was his life's ambition. (laughs) And you know why? Because repentance has no room for self. Repentance has very little room for kings. John lived his life so that his living would not interrupt his message. The Savior is coming. Repent. The healer is coming. Repent. John knew that healing of the nation began with the healing of the soul. He knew that repentance cleared the way for the baptism of the Holy Ghost, which was, he said, was coming through Jesus Christ. It required the people to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. In fact, John was so emphatic that he baptized people in water unto repentance. The spiritual person was in need, and there was only one way to be healed. I so wish you could hear this word with your spiritual ears, with not just secularism, because choices have to be made, and they have to be made by the believer 
We are in the throes of a decision, as it were, the valley of decision. It's where destinies are determined and lives are weighed in the balance. Families are waiting. Our nation is waiting. Our economy is waiting. Our very country, our nation, may well be waiting on the church to repent and turn from our former ways. We need a spiritual reset, and repentance is just that. Repentance cancels the buildup of thoughts and actions that are against God. Can you hear the Lord speaking today? I hear the Lord in this house. We are... I've always kept this in my pulpit. This has been for a long time. This is a bottle of Purell Advanced. Kills most germs. I've had this, replenished this many, many times through the years. No one told me I had to do it. I just always had a Purell around. I'll put it back in my pulpit. I've already put some on my hands a couple of times this morning. We're doing this on a regular basis. In fact, I've washed my hands so much they've dried out. And my wife has lotion. She, I borrowed her lotion. We're taking precautions against a virus that has a high rate of sustainability and infection. It can be transferred easily. It limits life. It cuts off oxygen. It It's no respecter of age or persons or gender or status or fame. It preys against all who come in contact with it, usually damaging those with weaker immune systems. So what do we do? What are we told to do? The common things. We are cleaning our hands and we're covering our mouths. Clean hands and a pure heart. Who shall ascend into the heart? hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place here's the Bible he that hath clean hands and a pure heart who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity nor sworn deceitfully all of this for a virus that can harm the body all of this just in case all of these things just in case all of this lives shut down economies shut down homes closed up nations closed up airlines closed up most people maybe not all are willing to go through a period of loneliness emptiness economic depression and more all to stop the spread but when it comes to sin Repentance is the healing balm of the nation. Clean hands and a pure heart. Repentance is the path for repair. It all begins at repentance. That's the starting line. Not innovation or intellect. Not even praise. Praise comes after the hands are clean. Holy hands are lifted, not just hands. Lifted hands with an unsurrendered heart is nothing more than a facade. And I wonder how many times we just did this with corrupted hearts not clean hands because we didn't wash ourselves because he just went through the motion we said well we're just going to be here we're just hey I'm religious I go to church I'm this I'm this denomination or I'm that but our hearts were changed and our hands were dirty and our lives were corrupted and don't you know that a corrupted people even a corrupted believer it stains and damages the nations so I say today, I preach today, lay down your scepter.
scepters. Take off your crowns. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God because only he can lift us up and he'll do it when we humble ourselves. I'm calling today on God's people. Call by God's name because the sacrifices of God, they are not money. They are not monies. They are not talents. They are not time. They are not abilities. They are broken spirits and contrite hearts. And the Bible Bible gives us every indication. In fact, Isaiah stood up and wrote this. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in high and holy places with him. That means with people, a man or a woman, the person. I dwell with them also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. Uh, I'm preaching today we've got to repent we've got to get back to that altar we've got to get back to that altar of sacrifice we got to start burning things we got to start laying things down we got to start killing all that stuff we have built up so many things we cannot get to the holy of holies because we haven't had death there's no life without death I say to you, stop building things that will rust. Stop putting your trusted in horses, trusted horses and chariots and money. You ought to be building your life up in the Lord. You ought to be on your face. You ought to be buried your face in your hands. Put your coffee cup down now. Put your pen down now. Fold your hands and close your eyes and say, renew me, restore me, change me. We're creating me a clean heart. Revive me. Don't throw me away. I hope the church will stop chasing the approval of a secular carnal society who cares what people think we are never going to be in sync with the trends of the world or if of America we're never going to be trending trending people are almost always separated from a holy God Why do we spend so much time trying to blend in when the Lord emphatically told us to come out from among them? Why are we spending so much time trying to get with everybody and trying to make peace with everything? Let me tell you, you ought to make a war inside of your own home. You ought to stop blaming. Come on, church. I'm preaching to you. Stop blaming politicians. Stop blaming economies. Stop blaming business people. The healing of the nation is not in the hands of the doctors. The healing of the nation is in the hands of the believer, the people of God, called by his name. If I send a famine, if I send a swarm of locusts, or if I send an epidemic, here's what you've got to do. My people, called by my name, humble yourselves. Turn. I'll restore you. I'll change you. I'll give healing. If we are the salt of the earth, Jesus said, if the salt loses its savor, if the salt loses its innate design and power, it can't preserve anything. 
See, there'll come a day when the church is resurrected, when people will be resurrected, and then this whole earth is going to spoil. It's going to rot real quick. The only thing holding back massive corruption is the church of the Most High God. But if the believers lose their worth, then the same thing happens to our world. So I say today, don't just take a moment. Take every day. Don't take just a time right now and then go about your business. Don't go about your business. You've got no business except God's business. Repent. Fall on your face. Come on, kings and queens. Come on, all the monarchs. Come on, all the people of America. Come on, all the church. Put aside all that stuff. Just confess, I don't know. Confess with your mouth, I need God. Say it, I'm inept, I'm inept. I don't have it. I don't have the answers. You got to say it to God. He already knows it. Come on, let's confess. We need you. We got to, we've got to have you. We clean us. You want to you pray for all the other people? Start right here. Don't pray for anybody. Pray for your own heart. Oh God, create in me a clean heart. Renew within me the sacrifice of God. You want to sacrifice something to God? I hope you can do it later with other things. But right now, what you need to do is sacrifice your spirit, your heart, a broken spirit, a contrite heart. And I end here and say, God rejected some of their sacrifices. Some of the animals were rejected. Some of the offerings were rejected because they weren't done correctly. The opening pages of history, God rejected Cain's sacrifice. He made a sacrifice, but it wasn't the right one. God can reject the sacrifices. That wasn't the only time. He rejects a sacrifice when Samuel tried to make it. He rejected that sacrifice because the wrong person made it and David implies that there are some sacrifices God will never despise thou wilt not despise you'll never turn away from my broken heart and from my contrite spirit it's like the Lord is drawn to that nothing nothing catches his attention like when his people cry I say oh God I need you and all of a sudden healing starts to flow from the throne of heaven so right now come on join me I'm going to step aside and we're going to have an altar call and we're going to repent of our sin and we're going to turn our lives you ought to get something out you just burn every burn every bitter spirit that you've had burn it on that altar of sacrifice burn every grudge burn every wound burn everything you're holding against somebody else burn it all on that and say God forgive me I've been holding on to stuff for a long time all that you've harbored in your life that's keeping you sick it's keeping our nation ill and you won't go to heaven with all that in your heart now Lord 
forgive us, Lord. We're repenting right now. We're repenting right now. We're repenting right now. That's right. Come on, say it out of your mouth. Come on, call on Jesus. Maybe you want to kneel where you are. If you can't, stand up right now and throw your hands up in the air and say, Lord, wash me and purge me. Deliver me, create in me. Don't despise me. Don't, don't let me go, Lord. Don't cast me away. That's right. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.